what's actually happening there is I'm just getting so excited by the content in the episode that I'm just smacking the recorder. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> I'm, I get ex- I get thrilled. Yeah, I mean it's it's your recorder, so just do what you want to it. Actually, I think it's your recorder. I know. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, baseball glove contour experimentalist, Jeremy Ruggles. Have you considered the texture of crayons? You know, not recently, but that's something to think about. Suppose the grippy feature of a nice crayon glove okay 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 i hear you jeremy we're also joined by the foremost american expert on the rewiring of magnapan speakers peter cook foremost in america yes i went to zimbabwe and i wasn't shit Mm. you'll have that you will have that so Jeremy, I was thinking the other day that we haven't talked about nearly enough warlocks on this program, and I I heard a rumor that you might be correcting this error with this episode. True, and I'm also bringing, I realized while I was getting ready, this is the second album of show tunes that I'm bringing, and I don't even like musicals at all, period. But <laughs> you're taking a real I'm, hard stance on that. <laughs> yeah, but here's another album of musicals, so maybe I need to consider whether I'm allowed to have that opinion anymore. <laughs> How about you uh, play us a track there, big buddy? Yeah, here's a bomb ass song. What kind of fool am I Who never fell in love It seems that I'm the only one That I have been thinking of What kind of man is this An empty shell A lonely cell In which an empty heart must dwell What kind of lips are these That lied with every kiss That whispered empty words of love That left me alone like this Why can't I 
Jeremy, what a voice. What a crooner. Who is this? Well, if you clicked the play button on your podcast, you know it's Sammy Davis Jr. That seems a little ableist, Jeremy. <laughs> I suppose so. I'm sorry, <laughs> Peter. That was Sammy Davis Jr. singing... What kind of fool am I from the musical Stop the World, I Want to Get Off? Yeah, Sammy Davis saw the play and he really dug a bunch of the songs. And four of the songs on this album are from that play in particular. Stop the World, I Want to Get Off? Yeah, I read the plot. It seemed to be about someone who is dissatisfied with their life and sleeps around with these women that I'm guessing are metaphorical because one's like a Nazi-ish German woman and one's a Bolshevik Russian lady and one's a ditzy American. And then his wife dies and he realizes like all the love he really needed was with his wife all along. Interesting plot. Yeah, I don't know if it's good or not. Yeah, the songs are good, though. <laughs> that was a fantastic performance right there. Yeah. Something I wanted to address with that, you mentioned that you normally don't like show tunes or musicals kind of thing. And I would agree with you, but the thing I've started to realize over time is that I only don't like them if they don't feel genuine. Like, as we've proven with, you know, as we will prove with this episode and as we've proven with the the Willie Nelson record, you know, these almost inherently cheesy songs in the right hands can become amazing. And I'm glad that we're featuring another dollar bin gem of that category. Yeah. And I feel like the context also, like when I watch a musical and the song comes and they had already like acted out lines of it and you know, like what the song's going to be about. And I don't know, it just doesn't do it for me. But it's, this song is actually what brought me to Sammy Davis Jr., but not from Sammy Davis Jr., but in fact, the American indie rock band Deer Tick did a cover of this on their first album, and I was like, this song rules, and I went to look it up and learn how to play it, and then it was said Sammy Davis Jr. everywhere. And I was like, I know that name, but I don't know what it sounds like. Turns out it rules. Sure does. I honestly, I have known the name Sammy Davis Jr. for, I don't know, 25, 30 years. I don't think I've ever 
listen to Sammy Davis Jr. I never knew what genre he did. Had no idea until you said you wanted to do this album, which the name of this album is... What Kind of Fool Am I and Other Showstoppers. And is it from 1963? 62, I believe. Yep, 62. Okay. Yeah, and I had no idea. I... I I was surprised. I was like, the, "Oh, the, he's a, he's a crooner, indeed, a fantastic crooner." Amongst and that was one of a whole bunch of things that he was astronomically good at, which will take me back to his bio. Mister Sammy Davis Jr. was born in 1925 in Harlem. And he was the son of a couple of vaudeville dancers. And when he was three years old, they separated. And his father took him on the road uh, dancing. So his uncle, Will Mastin, and his father taught him how to dance. And he joined them on stage. Uh, It sounded like around the age of six. (laughs) And then continued dancing with them. Uh, until he was 18 years old in the Will Maston Trio. So he was a phenomenal dancer and also tap dancer separately that he was extremely good at. He's kind of raised in that uh, culture, the vaudevillian culture. Yeah, and after, well, at age 18, he was drafted into the military. This was during World War II. And he, on top of, you know, going into war, was very brutally introduced to racism because, as he said, his father and his uncle, Will, he referred to him as uncle, but his dad and him were just friends but that they had shielded him from racism largely and would explain away sort of snubs and being treated differently as uh, jealousy, that people were just jealous of how talented they were. But in the military, he was getting beat up regularly and had his nose broken so many times that it became permanently flattened. Damn. That's right. Yeah, it, it wasn't just that he was getting beat up. Like he was definitely seemed like he wasn't taking shit from anybody. Like his quote was something like he was in a knockdown all out fight every other day in the military. Yeah. And he's five foot six and 120 pounds. Right. He was in the military and they eventually reassigned him to the army special services branch and moved him into performing for the troops. So he did that for a while and returned after the war was over and rejoined his father and his uncle doing the family dance circuit. The other thing I'd read was that when he started performing for the army, he started noticing that he was often performing these shows for people that had literally beaten him up recently in the army. (laughs) I was wondering if he had to, if he was looking out and seeing all these people clapping who are people he had been in brawls with yeah. and yeah absolutely. they probably wanted his wanted his autograph and it was like we talked about in tammy Wynette, where her ex-husband wanted her autograph <laughs> well part of what he had said was that he viewed his becoming a performer as like part of his fight against racism 
his his thought was that if these people who had viewed him as subhuman before saw him as a performer and maybe like started to recognize his value a little bit from that, that he could maybe do his part in starting to like change some of these racist views, which is just crazy to be able to take like that kind of an approach to it and not just remain like bitter about it. I mean, I'm sure there was bitterness about it too, but it's like, it definitely, it felt like something that I personally would not have been capable of having the viewpoint of. Yeah, that's some insight right there. Yeah, he definitely opened doors, I would say, in multiple forms of entertainment for black Americans. So to some degree, it seemed to work, though a lot of it, he used other tactics as well to kind of help end racism or not end it, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, it's we're lessen not, it. Yeah, we're not there yet, unfortunately. When he came back from the war, he began recording blues songs under the pseudonyms Shorty Muggins and Charlie Green. And then in 1953, was offered his own TV show. Hmm. They called it Three for the Road, and it was about three struggling black musicians, which at its time was very progressive to portray just everyday lives of black Americans. And they had lined up a bunch of black celebrities at the time to be on the show and were going to film the pilot and everything, but they couldn't get anyone to sponsor the show. No corporate sponsors would sponsor it because they were black. What year was this? 1953. Oh, wow. Following that, in 1954, he was in a car accident while driving on Route 66 that nearly killed him and is also when he lost his eye, which I didn't even know until I was doing research. Somehow I had no idea. Unfortunately, I knew that from an Adam Sandler lyric. I'm not proud of it, but he did <laughs> sing the line, Sammy Davis Jr. only had one eye. It, he has a plastic eye that replaced it, right? It's a glass eye. I don't, it was a I glass? Don't know. He recovered and he had become friends with Frank Sinatra, who the Will Maston trio had opened for previously, and him and Frank hit it off. And after the car accident, he was recovering at Frank Sinatra's house, and his friend Eddie Cantor had been talking to him about the parallels, and they had talked about, you know, their life experience, specifically in regards to Eddie being Jewish and Sammy being black. And Sammy began studying the history of Judaism and converted in 1961. 1959, he joined the Rat Pack officially with Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Joey Bishop, and Peter Lawford, which I have to also admit previously, if somebody asked me who was in the Rat Pack, I'd be like, Frank Sinatra, uh... <laughs> Dean Martin. <laughs> I, yeah, see, I, I wouldn't I have even known just that. looked that up the other day, actually, before I even know you were doing this, because I had that thought. I was like, oh, yeah, the Rat Pack. Who was in that? Sammy Davis, Sinatra, and... <laughs> yeah. We're not of that generation. 
No. Well, and the other two guys were definitely a lot less famous than the other ones, so it kind of makes sense that everyone's forgotten about whoever those other two guys were. Yeah, one of them was like a cousin of JFK or something, and right was oh probably some Illuminati shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sammy actually talked Sinatra out of. He originally wanted to name the group the Clan, which for <laughs> obvious reasons is I, a terrible name. It's a good thing Sammy was there to talk him out of that. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so Sinatra decided to call it the Summit. And then the media just decided to call them the Rat Pack. Yeah, it's really up to the media. And Frank Sinatra. <laughs> yeah, they Frank Sinatra hated it many, many years ongoing from there, but it stuck. I'm going to throw another song at you. Do it. This one uh, really struck me because it's kind of strange. It's just Sammy and a drum. Oh, I love and this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, this is a really cool song version. Also blew me away, so begin the begin. Take me where the drums will awake me. Take so fully realized like you get the feeling he would almost do the exact same performance of that song with a like a big band behind him but he did it so perfectly with only the drums i just i love that his delivery was incredible yeah i almost wondered when i was listening if like they had forgotten to pull up the rest of the instruments in the mix (laughs) it doesn't seem like that because you can hear him snapping at one point too like he definitely seems like he's feeling that arrangement 
Yeah. No, I believe he could do it. It's just that he sings it with the bombast and confidence of someone that's singing that type of song with a full band. And, and the drums, the, whoever the drummer is, I have no idea who's on the kit. They kill it, too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if he's remembered at all by, like, younger generations, it seems like more as a character, as a joke. People have totally forgotten that he was a world-class talent. Yeah, this proves it. Definitely. In fact, my probably my first exposure to Sammy Davis Jr. was via the classic movie Wayne's World 2, where uh, Tim Meadows plays a Sammy Davis Jr. character in there that like appears in a fever dream or something. Man, I haven't seen that one since we watched it with uh, Dead Rider at your house about 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Chicago's that. own Dead Rider. <laughs> I remember seeing Sammy Davis Jr. as played by Sammy Davis Jr. in an episode of All in the Family. Are either of you familiar with that program? That's the Archie Bunker one. Yeah, Archie Bunker. Yeah, I know about it, but I never watched it. So I don't know how many of our you know our, our listeners. I I try not to assume what they do know and don't know. It was a fan a show. All in the Family was a television program in the 70s that featured a character named Archie Bunker, his wife, Edith, and his meathead son, played by Rob Reiner. Oh, no, it was his son-in-law, I think. It was his son-in-law was played by Rob Reiner, the director of, like, Misery and When Harry Met Sally. And uh, Sally Struthers was his daughter. And Archie Bunker was portrayed as this all-American bigot, essentially, played Mm -hmm. by Carol O'Connor. And they had an episode where they were obviously trying to make fun of this mindset, this American mindset. Unfortunately, some viewers took it as like upholding those values. But Sammy Davis Jr., uh, Archie was a cab driver. And there was an episode where Sammy Davis Jr. had been a passenger in his cab and had accidentally left his briefcase in the cab. Uh, So Archie comes home and, you know, he's... Like, hey, I had, you know, a real talent in my cab, Sammy Davis Jr., and he has to, he's coming by now, he's got to pick up his briefcase. And so Sammy Davis Jr. comes over, and it's like the only time Archie was ever excited about a black person being in his house. And he tells Sammy Davis Jr., like, oh, Mr., uh, you're, you're a real credit to your race, you know. And so Sammy Davis Jr., you can see his, his attitude shifts at this moment. Archie, they want to take a picture together, and uh, Sammy Davis Jr. counts it down. Three, two, one, and then just plants a big kiss right on Archie's cheek as the photo's taken, and Archie just looks petrified, and it, it's, it was uh, legendary. I saw that episode when I was probably about 15, and that's what I remember Sammy Davis Jr. from, is him making a fool out of Archie Bunker. Which was not even Sammy Davis's first legendary on-screen kiss. True. Because he had a show or a special with Nancy Sinatra where they started the show by exchanging a kiss. And it was like unheard of because no one had seen a black and a white person kiss on television before. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was the first one. Anyways, if you guys are done talking about TV, I want to talk about Sammy Davis Jr. Well, at least his music well, Sammy Davis Jr. had a had a TV obsession, so it's appropriate, Jeremy. Yeah, and he like acted in a lot of things as well. But True. we're not focusing on that. We're focusing on the music. 
All right, let's talk about some music. That's fine. We can do it. Let's go. All right. Well, he was performing with the Rat Pack, and if you know about the Rat Pack, you know they were tied to the mob and that they were playing in Vegas a ton. So he was headlining shows in Vegas, but they wouldn't allow Sammy Davis Jr. to stay at the hotels or eat at the restaurants there. And Frank would like occasionally strong arm them and be like, hey, either you let him stay or like we're not playing. And then Sammy started singing up for himself too and just telling places he's not going to play if they're going to have segregation rules at all. So that was another way that he was able to help lessen racism in his day. But he just, he kept, having to face this stuff down nonstop. 1957, he was seeing an actress named Kim Novak, and the studio head at Columbia Pictures, who had signed this actress, was worried about how it would look, her dating a black man, so he hired mobsters to threaten Sammy Davis Jr., who then showed up at his door and threatened to break his leg and knock his other eye out unless he married a black woman in two days. What the fuck? Yeah, so in, you know, fearing for his life, Sammy paid an ex of his allegedly ten dollars or $25,000 to marry him for a year so that he wouldn't get killed. They never lived together. It was like a sham marriage just to keep him from getting killed, essentially. Well, that is nuts. Yeah. Yeah, and there was a a really heavy story I I read about. He got, like, very drunk the day of the wedding. And, like, I think post-wedding, he, like, actually assaulted his new bride and was, like, trying to choke her. And people, like, pulled him off of her. And he was like broke down in tears after that, saying like, "Why can't they just let me live my life?" It's yeah. like yeah. super heavy. There's so many crazy heavy stories similar to that that have happened to Sammy over his life. But yeah, when I read that, I was just like had to pause. I was like, "Man, that is just so fucked up on so many levels." Yeah. Yep. And it just kept rolling. In 1960, he was going to marry actress May Britt. Also an interracial marriage and he delayed it because him and Frank Sinatra were campaigning for JFK and JFK wanted to wanted them to delay the wedding because he didn't want pictures of this interracial marriage you know getting to the media and he was worried about it uh, losing vote with Democrats in the South So he delays the marriage for JFK. JFK wins, and then JFK promptly uninvites Sammy Davis Jr. to play his inauguration after they went through with the marriage after he won the election. Sammy Davis Jr.'s daughter described that as the greatest humiliation Sammy Davis felt in his life to have campaigned to help this guy win and put off his marriage for it and then for the guy to turn around and snub him from playing this inauguration because he went through with a marriage that he had already delayed for him. Yeah, greatly soured him. 
Yeah, especially because JFK was supposedly, you know, running on this, like, partially, like, anti-racism platform. So for it to be like, yeah, we're making these strides, supposedly, but it's still pretty superficial. And from what I understand, not only was he dropped from the inauguration, but he was dropped, like, the night before. Like, super last minute. Yeah. Yep. And that uh, is something to bear in mind. I know a lot of people know Sammy Davis Jr. for an infamous hug he gave to Richard Nixon that out of context seems bizarre for him to be supporting Richard Nixon, but in the context of, you know, having been snubbed and used by Democrat JFK, it makes more sense, I suppose. Right, yeah, political affiliation seems to matter a lot less after you experience something like that. Yeah, the way I heard the Nixon stuff described, Sammy largely seemed like he was trying to gain some sway with the president, who actually seemed to like him and kept inviting him to the White House. And he saw it as an opportunity to try and get funding for anti-poverty programs and also linked to our Stevie Wonder episode, he was trying to get the president to make Martin Luther King's birthday a national holiday. Nice. You know, I kind of assumed that that was the reason behind the association, so I'm glad you did a little bit more digging on that. Yeah. There's also Clark Peters, who is a fellow trying to put together a play about Sammy Davis Jr., suggested a more cynical reason that uh, Sammy Davis Jr. owed a ton of money in taxes, and it seemed as though Sammy was also trying to get Richard Nixon's help in uh, getting rid of his enormous tax bill he had amassed. That was Clark Peters? Yeah. The guy that we just talked about on, that was on the last episode... He's saying on Joan Armitrading's album from The Wire. Yeah, from The Wire. That's the guy. That's that's that guy. Wow, I didn't even notice that connection at first, but yeah. (laughs) There it is. The Clark Peters connection. That's the new Tupac connection. (laughs) Speaking of, do you have a Tupac connection, Peter? I do, yeah. So in Tupac's final video uh, for the song I Ain't Mad At You." that came out just days after he died, the video had actually depicted him, Tupac, being shot, killed, and going to heaven. And then in heaven, he hung out with all these different celebrities, and one of them was Sammy Davis Jr. Nice. What, what year would have that been? 1996. Okay, which was only six years after Sammy Davis Jr. passed away, so that was a little more fresh in people's memory at that point. Yeah, yeah. I remember Jimi Hendrix was depicted in there as well. And yeah, it was a weird thing, though. Yeah, the fact that Tupac died and then his final video depicted him being shot and going to heaven. It was within days of him actually dying. It was very strange. You can see why there would have been conspiracies about him faking his death. Oh, sure. But anyway, back to Sammy. We'll save the Tupac conspiracies for another podcast. Oh, I've got a whole new podcast plan there. I'm sure. I'm sure there's already several of those. 
Yeah, we should announce to those podcasts, Peter is available for guest interviews. Yeah. <laughs> Hit me up. PeterDamianCook at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Six degrees of Tupac. <laughs> I'm going to drop another track on y'all. Do it. Oh, yes. What do you got next for us? I was divided between two of them. If you guys want to vote, I was thinking either Too Close for Comfort or My Romance. My Romance? I think My Romance. That's fine. My Romance. Let's do it. Let's do it. My Romance Doesn't have to have A moon in the sky My romance Doesn't need A blue lagoon Standing by No month Of May No Twinkling star, no hide away, and no soft guitars. My romance doesn't need a castle rising in Spain or a dance. To a constantly surprising refrain Wide awake I can make my most fantastic dreams come true My romance doesn't need a thing but you We couldn't find a great deal of information about the players on this record. A lot of these older pop records, some of that information is just lost to time. Maybe it's hiding in the archive of a record company somewhere. But we did just find out that the director of the orchestrations was a guy named Marty Page or Pike, I guess we still don't know how to say this guy's name, uh, but he, we talked about him on one of our very early episodes, which was uh, Spirit, the family that plays together. He, uh, Marty arranged uh, several of those early Spirit records, and Sean just dug that one up. So thank you, Sean. Yeah, it, it makes sense that he was willing to take some non-conventional approaches, like with the uh you know, begin to begin with just the drums. The fact that he was willing to do records like this and he did a lot of stuff with Mel Torme and some other crooners and big bands from the era, but then was also willing to work with Spirit. I feel like that uh, that range kind of shows on this record a little bit. Yeah, it's pretty adventurous at times, or throughout. He was an adventurous fellow. Mm-hmm. I watched a video of him on the Ed Sullivan show and Ed was like, what are you going to play Sammy? And Sammy was like, yes. And then Sammy 
proceeds to just shred on the drums and then like kind of wander around and then go shred on the xylophone and he doesn't even sing. (laughs) I love that. That's so cool. Yeah. The dude just like so talented just he uh, was an extremely talented impersonator as well. He was very good at capturing voices or different types of voices. Do you know if he did any voicing uh, for, like, voice acting? I honestly don't know. I really didn't have much interest in looking into, like, his TV and film side, though that was extensive from just glancing over it. But, yeah, I'm really not sure if he did any voice acting. I'm sure he could have very well. He just strikes me as such a classic voice that would fit really well in, like, animated uh, material. I'm looking it up now. There, he did like a couple things in the scene, but nothing that I really recognize. He voiced the Cheshire Cat in a Alice in Wonderland adaptation, like a TV movie in 1966. Okay. It looks like he, uh, in a 1980, the 1985 version of Alice in Wonderland, another TV movie, he was the Caterpillar and Father William. Different yeah. <laughs> adaptation. And then he was in an 82 animated movie called Heidi's Song. Okay. I'm not really familiar with that one either, but yeah, I mean, he extensive appearances on shows and then starring in some movies, you know, he was in Cannonball Run 2 and then obviously the, the series of Rat Pack movies like the original Ocean's Eleven and stuff like that. Yeah, this dude worked. It looks like he was in two episodes of Fantasy Island. <laughs> well, that, that's part of what I had read is he was, he had a weird obsession with daytime television, like particularly soap operas and like very cheesy stuff like that and wanted to be more a part of that than he even like already was. Oh yeah. I see it right here. That all in the family episode was from 1972. Yeah. He's, he's, he was in a lot. I'm just scrolling through here. I can see he had an obsession with this and uh, utilized that to get involved. Yeah. And he, on top of all that film and music stuff, and he was playing constantly. This album was his 21st studio album, and he went on to do almost 50 studio albums. Extremely prolific. Yeah, and I saw that he he almost had a like extended record deal with Motown. He put out one, maybe two records with Motown, but was in talks with them about like launching a Motown subsidiary label that he would have control of, which never actually realized. But it would have been interesting if he'd have done that. I wonder what he would have released. Yeah, so I guess I wonder, did he jump around in different genres or was it mostly, did he mostly stick to this style? Show to well, me. The Motown record was supposed to be freshing him up for a younger audience. That was in 1970. But it's still, it's all covers, and it's stuff that kind of makes sense. Like, he did, like, Spinning Wheel for Once in My Life, Wichita Line Man. Uh, He did a version of Elvis is in the Ghetto, because apparently they were really good buds. Wow. So it's like, it was younger music for the time, but definitely all stuff that makes sense for a crooner to be doing. Yeah, so he's really just show business. Definitely. Just through and through. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that his name was Mr. Show Business, right? Am I crazy? That sounds right. Yeah, I, kn- I know he had some kind of a nickname like that. Yeah. Well, this is cool. I'm glad I need to I need to scope out more of his catalog because yeah. this is all new to me. I just knew him from All in the Family and Tupac's video. 
Well, Jeremy, you want to keep enlightening us? You got any more nuggets to, to hit us with about the wonderful Sammy Davis Jr.? I can tell you he was also an avid photographer on top of all this and shot film for like 30 years. Posthumously, they put out a book of his photographs that he collected because he captured a lot of rare photos of famous people because he was around them all the time. On top of that, he was an extremely skilled gunslinger and gun shooter and was extremely good at gun spinning and quick draw. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, Johnny Cash said that he could draw in under a quarter second, which is, you know, extremely fast. Hmm. I'm sure Johnny Cash saw a lot of gunslingers in his time. <laughs> so if he's impressed. Yeah. I suppose I can cover the uh, some more turmoil. In 1968, his wife found out he was cheating. They got divorced. And then Sammy entered kind of a rough patch of drug use, using a lot of cocaine and poppers, and became friends with Anton LaVey, founder of the Church of Satan, and started hanging around the Church of Satan. Yeah, that's an unexpected twist and turn in his story. <laughs> yeah, he uh, associated with them for six years through 1974. There's some kind of TV show I read very quickly called like Poor Devil or something that somehow involves Satanism. And a bunch of religious people stopped it from actually going on the air. I don't know. It seemed like an interesting story if you're into that. Yeah. I wonder how much his conversion to Judaism had to do with his interest in Satanism, because Judaism has a long history of some pretty weird out there mysticism and different sects of the religion that are far more into that. So he might have been a little bit primed for that transition. Yeah, that would make sense. And for those who don't know, the Church of Satan isn't even really a religious thing very much. They do a lot of rituals. Primarily, it seems like a humanitarian kind of movement of sorts that is meant more so to like mock religion than to like actually believe in any certain religion. Right. I think it focuses largely on the self. Yeah, it's hyper individualistic. Yeah, I've known a few people that have dabbled. Sammy Davis was one of them. We were good buds. <laughs> yeah, he achieved the status of level two warlock. Which I have no idea, like how difficult that is. Like, is that a is that a big accomplishment in the Church of Satan? Did you do any research on that, Jeremy? <laughs> yeah, he knows all about it. <laughs> Here's all the levels. I did not, but Warlock sounds pretty intimidating. So I assume that's pretty pretty up there. All right, we can go with that. I mean, judging by his level of skill and seemingly random other things. I would imagine that he was like a, a top-ranking member of the Church of Satan that only really fits with his, his life story. Yeah, if you told me right now that a level two warlock who's a good gunslinger was coming over to my house, I'd be a little intimidated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what really boggled my mind researching this is that would have been right in that time frame that he was like supporting the Nixon campaign. And I can't imagine how it didn't come out that Sammy Davis Jr. 
was in the church of Satan and attending these ritualistic orgies and also supporting Richard Nixon. I'm sure there's a lot of Illuminati attending ritualistic orgies who are high up in there. I've seen Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. I know. Nixon Ooh, went true. to his share of orgies, let's be real. Yeah. <laughs> orgies of profanity. <laughs> if you've ever heard the Nixon tapes, it's like uh, Casey Kasem or something. Casey Kasem outtakes. Vulgar. When those came out is when Sammy really jumped ship on Nixon. And he said he regretted it because he was kind of being led along by Nixon, who Sammy believed was actually going to institute his suggestions and programs that they had talked about. But in reality, Nixon was just using him to try and improve his image with the black community. Well, I have no doubt about it. <laughs> yeah, but instead, Sammy just had to like, carry the weight of having been associated with Nixon to the black community. And that really haunted him for many years. I don't know, probably it still haunts his legacy. I would bet there's a lot of people who don't really know the context of all that that make their assumptions. Yeah, yeah, probably wasn't good PR. Are there any other artists along the lines of Sammy Davis Jr. that you might find in a dollar bin worth checking out that either of you can recommend? I mean, obviously, Dinah Washington, for sure. Yeah, Frank Sinatra's stuff is pretty damn good, too. I mean, I know a lot of people are coming back around to him and his records are selling again, so it's like not news to a lot of people, but... Both those guys had a great way of injecting a lot of humanity into these songs like we talked about. And I've been meaning to start to dive more into this era of pop music a lot more and find other artists that have that genuine approach because I know there is a fair amount of it out there. And a lot of these people had to be monstrously talented to make it in the industry at that point in time. You know, it was a lot harder to just kind of fake it. Like you really had to be multi-talented. So I'm, I'm curious to find more, more people in that, that era of pop music. Yeah, I'm sure they're out there. You know, we know a lot of the big names, but there's got to be a, there's a whole bunch of them who played at more local levels, may have not even gotten recording contracts or much smaller output. You know, some people were more like radio stars than actual uh, putting out records. And in some cases, those are archived and sometimes not. There's a lot out there from this era of the style. Yeah, and you know, just because this is like several generations removed at this point, a lot of these records used to be valuable and are almost worthless at this point. Even this record, you know, if you look at the early pressings on Discogs, <laughs> they were going for like 30 bucks at one point and are now 2 to $5 records like everything else. So there's, there's a lot of really interesting stuff that at one point was very well loved that needs to be rediscovered so that's why we're doing this podcast absolutely yeah so if you've heard of sammy davis but you can't think of what it sounds like go buy one of these they're everywhere yeah and they're delicious <laughs> well shoot thanks for listening to another fantastic episode of this podcast thanks for doing this pick jeremy this was a lot of interesting stuff to dig into 
Yeah, I don't even think I covered like half of it. So yeah, also, definitely. if you're interested in Sammy Davis, there's like a lot of stuff I did not cover because we're not going to do a three-hour podcast. That's just not who we are. Yeah, maybe we'll rip another Sammy Davis record later on. We could do that Motown record sometime. We'll see. Yeah. Well, I'm Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. And I'm Peter Cook. We'll see you next time. What uh, what track are we going out on, Jeremy? Oh, yeah, we're going out on, uh, is it Once in a Lifetime? Once in a Lifetime. The Talking Head song? <laughs> no. Just once in a lifetime A man knows a moment One wonderful moment Thank you for listening to this episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Just want to take a quick moment to mention our Patreon. If you're feeling supportive, if you've got a few extra dollars a month you want to throw our way so we can keep doing this for many more episodes to come, you can find us at patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. We got a couple different tiers you can subscribe at. For just $1, you will get early access to all the episodes. We will email you download links at least a few days before it airs to the general public. At $5 a month, you get special bonus episodes. We have committed to recording at least one new Patreon-only episode every month. So far, those are all about 45s instead of LPs. And then if you want to give us at least $20 a month, we have a vinyl subscription plan just for you. Every month we will mail you an LP and 45 plus a handwritten note about why we like the music. So I hope to see you there. And if you just want to support us by not, but not financially, you know, leave us a review, like, and subscribe, tell your friends. Thanks for listening. And he calls me And though it may be just once in a lifetime